All right. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Roselle. Well, we get to uh, come back again into the middle of uh, what John was uh, sharing with us in John chapter 5. Um, you might just rem- rem- remember that uh, Jesus had just performed a remarkable miracle. Uh, here was a, a man that he'd, he'd come across at the pool of Bethesda. And he'd been uh, without strength, I guess, is really the, the, the best description that we get from, from, uh, from the Gospel of John. Um, for, for 38 years, apparently unable to, to get himself up and to move, unable to move himself from where he was laying into a pool of water in the hopes that, that somehow he would be healed because he was the first one to get to the water. 38 years. Now, some of you have had different ailments and struggles for a good many years. You can maybe imagine a little bit what that would be like for most of us to be, to be 38 years in that kind of condition. And he kept trying, right? He kept coming back again to the pool uh, as the, uh, you know, the, the legend or the, the story or, or the, uh, what had been told about that pool was that an angel would come and stir the water. And if you were the first one in, you would get healed. He kept coming back, but he couldn't ever get there in time. He didn't have somebody to pick him up and move him to the water to be the first in line, uh, going on and on without hope. And Jesus found that man. Um, and you imagine what it would be like to have been in that condition. Um, you know, whatever, whatever caused that condition, certainly the man's uh, muscles would have been atrophied. He would have been someone whose legs shrunk down. Uh, he hadn't, if he hadn't been walking for all that long, if you've experienced that even for a matter of months, you understand that, that you almost have to, if you, if you get better, you have to learn all over how to use those muscles and get that get things working in the right way. You know, and then Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And he says, like, I can't get to the water in time. And Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. And instantly, he's healed. Imagine the feeling that he had in his legs as, as new muscle was there, as, as his body uh, had now this muscle memory and his mind was coordinating with things that hadn't happened. You know how quickly you forget how to do stuff if you don't do it very often? Think about that with walking. But suddenly he was able to walk. And then as he heads out into the crowds, it was a feast time in, in Israel. <laughs> Imagine it, it, he's trying to process all this after all these years and, and not really, I don't think, expecting anything to happen that day. And he runs into the religious leaders and you think, what should their response be? Oh, how wonderful that you can walk again. No, it's, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? You can't do that. That's against the rules. You've broken the laws. And it's almost hard to imagine. And yet, our hearts can be like that too sometimes, can't they? More worried about following the rules, more concerned about people doing things our way, more worried about us than about what God's accomplishing. But that's, that was the situation he found himself in, but even more so Jesus, because he said, well, you know, the man who healed me told me to do this. 
seems like he had some authority about the Sabbath in that case. And then he went and told the, told the leaders, and, and their response was, Let's, we got to stop this man. He is telling people to, to work on the Sabbath. Now, this, remember the Old Testament scriptures didn't, didn't give a lot of detail about that. The idea was you set aside what you do for a living. You trust God for that day so that your body can rest, so that you can give glory to the God who gave you the ability to work. You give glory to the God who truly provides all that you need. And you worship him, and you rest and, and rejuvenate your body for a new week of honoring him through your work. But they were more concerned about the fact that they'd thought it all through, and, and carrying your bed didn't match with their rules, that they added to God's command about the Sabbath. And so Jesus was on their blacklist. In fact, if, we, if you take a look in John chapter 5, verses 17 and, and 18, uh, they were persecuting him in verse 16. Verse 17 says, And he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And... If, in fact, Jesus was not God, according to the Old Testament law, to call it, to make himself equal with God, in essence, to call himself God, was punishable by death. The question is, who is this man who can heal someone who's been an invalid for 38 years? Is he, in fact, God? He said he called God his own father. In other words, in, in Jewish culture, that idea was that the father... And the son, his firstborn son, was they were equal. So if the son came representing his father and you rejected the son, it's as though you rejected the father. The two were on the same level. And that's what Jesus, in fact, was claiming. And understand, if Jesus was not claiming to be equal with God, he could have cleared it up there immediately. He could have been like Paul. Turn over to Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 11 through 15. Acts 14, verses 11 through 15. Just one book there past John. And in this situation, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had just been used by God to do an amazing healing, not unlike uh, what Jesus had done. Um, it says there that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. I'm sorry, verse 11. I'm in, I jumped ahead on you there. Verse 11, And the crowds saw what Paul had done, and they raised their voices, saying in the Iconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul, apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, 
who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And the generations gone by, He has permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet He did not leave Himself without a witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, they're like, oh, Paul, you and Barnabas, you did this by your power. And Paul's like, no, please don't think that at all. And especially their assumption that he was one of the Roman gods. He wanted the glory. Where did he turn them? He turned them to the one true God. He said, not me, but him. Not me, but the everlasting, all-powerful one. And if Jesus was not God and had just done this amazing miracle, that would have been his first response. If God had used him to raise this man up to health again, his first response, if he was not making himself or saying that he was equal with God, would have been, no, you've got this wrong. Let me instead point you to the Father. Instead, Jesus, in his response there in in verse 18 of of John chapter 5, is that, I work in perfect perfect concert with my Father. The things He does are the things that I do. Understand that we work perfectly together because, yes, He was saying, I am equal with God. In essence, then, I am God. And not only that, in the next section, as we follow along from now through the end of the chapter, Jesus just emphasizes that and makes it all the more certain that they understand exactly who he is. So follow along with me, if you would, please, as I read verses 19 through 24, which is just the beginning of Jesus making that very clear. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. These words of Jesus really are just an exclamation point. Yes, in fact, I am equal with God. I am God. Right from the very beginning, because he starts off in verse 19 with a phrase that he uses a number of times throughout the Gospel of John. But he says, truly, Truly, or if you have the the King James that says, verily, verily, or or just taking those words out of the Greek straight across, amen, amen. And the whole point of saying that is, you need to pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. Do not miss this fact. You need to know what I'm about to say. It's like underlining it in red. 
listen up. That his actions are completely tied to the Father's, he says in the first part of, of 19. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. He says, so I, I, I am connected to the Father. I watch the Father's plan. My plan is exactly the Father's plan. And those are the things that I do. Jesus goes so far to say that he is completely limited to doing what he knows the Father is doing. So does that cut back on what he does? Not at all. Because what is the Father doing? If you can tell me, I'd really like to know. Because he is doing so many things, more than we can ever begin to think or understand. But he's specifically here talking about it in the plan of salvation for mankind. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have this plan from before the foundation of the world. And now they are acting in complete union to carry it out. Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm doing. Is just what the Father is doing. And it's His character, His attributes, and His relationship to the Father make anything outside of that impossible. Not because He doesn't have the power to do it, because He wouldn't do it because of His character. Because of the fact that He is, in fact, God. And then, as he, there, there's kind of the, the overall statement. I'm doing what my father is doing. That's what got them in trouble. That's why they wanted to kill him. But you might notice, and it kind of depends on your translation, whether this comes out clearly or not. But Jesus then gives in all of these following verses an explanation of that. And, and each part of the explanation starts with the word for, F-O-R. And that's the, it's the Greek word for for, and that is the beginning of each of your verses is, that follow through here. Um, and even just the second part of verse 19, where he, where he says, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then you might notice verse 20, um, depending on your translation, but it should start with, For the Father, verse 21, For just as the Father, verse 22, For not even the Father. Here's... here's what that is all about, the fact that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. The end of verse 19, for whatever the Father does, seems repetitious, but catch the last part of that. These things the Son does in like manner. This is, this is an amazing statement that clarifies what he means he says clearly that he's able to do whatever the Father does in the same way that the Father does it. Think about that. That's an audacious claim if he's just a man. That's a ridiculous claim if he's just the son of Joseph and Mary. But if, in fact, he is the unique son of God, it makes sense that he would be able to do what his Father does in the same way. And in the Gospel of Luke, there's a, an incident recorded for the, something Jesus did for the benefit of the disciples and then that was passed on to us that helps us get that idea that He can do what the Father does in the way that the Father does. So turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. 
Luke chapter 8, 22 through 25. It says, Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. He said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water that they obey him? Stop and think about that. We've heard this account many times, some of us since we were little children. Um, but stop and think about being out on the water, even get out on one of our lakes on a real windy day here. It's beating you around. And to have somebody in the boat say, stop. Like glass, calm. Jesus says, I can do whatever I see my father doing in the same way he does it. He can actually command the waves and they stop. That's what Psalm 65 verses 5 through 8 says. That's not in your outline, but Psalm 65 verses 5 through 8. Here speaking of God, he says, By awesome deeds... You answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, listen here, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Just right there in the mix of all those amazing things that God does. He says, you calm the seas. You, you command them. You tell the roaring waves to stop. That's what God does. Jesus, to, to give a, a graphic demonstration to his disciples, showed them that, yeah, in the way that God does things, I can do them. I do them in the same kind of way. Then he goes on to the next four in in the next verse, verse 20. He says, For for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So now he's talking about, well, how, how is it that I can do whatever the Father does? Well, he starts off with the relationship that he has with God the Father. The Father loves the Son. What kind of love does the Father have for the Son? Well, probably, if you're familiar with studying the Bible or anything in the Greek language, you can say, oh, well, God has an agape love for the Son, right? That's not what John says here. He says, God has a phileo 
love. With the different words in the Greek language, and this word phileo means a love that's more of a, it's a love that is a fondness and an affection for someone. We think of it as a brotherly love, okay? Philadelphia love, right? City of brotherly love. God loves the Son with that kind of a fondness, that kind of an affection. It's not a lesser love than agape love, but it is a different kind of love. To me, what it sounds like is, is, is like when you have a father and his son grows up, grows up to be a good man, grows up in a good relationship with his father, and the two of them work together and have a very common way of thinking and doing things. And they develop into not just father and son, but really good friends. Of course, Jesus has always been at that level with his father, right? We have to experience it through growth and all of that. But the father and the son have that kind of a friendship love, a partnership love. And so it sounds to me here like that's the motivation behind then the second part of the verse, this this affection that the father has is what motivates him showing he says here, all things to the Son. It says the Father will sh- <clears throat> shows him all things that he himself is doing. There's, there's that connection, right? So Jesus doesn't just hear about some of the things the Father is doing. They're equal partners. There's nothing to hide between them. Now, between a, a, a human father and son, you know, as, as when your son is young, there's a lot of things you just don't tell them, right? They don't need to know everything you're doing. Okay? But if that son grows up and you work together and you uh, share together in, a, in common em- enterprise and, and you work together in the same business or on the same farm or ranch and there's a good friendship there, you just you share everything, right? That's, I think that's the picture we have here. The two working together as equals. Jesus is on, in on everything. And in an ongoing way, that is the tense of the verb there. Remember that Jesus is, we were told back in chapter 1, verse 18, he's the living, breathing, human explanation of the Father. Let's just go back and read that verse here really quickly. 118, where it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's what Jesus does. His, his, everything in his life and the things he was doing was an explanation for us as human beings. This is what God is like. So as, as the things he is doing are seen by people, people then are able to understand God in a whole new way. So Jesus, aware of all that his Father is doing, then lives out in front of people things so that they can say, oh, didn't really know what God was like until I saw what Jesus did. But then it goes on. Because the Father has this affection for the Son, He's going to show Him even greater things than what they have seen Him do already. This love motivates the Father to demonstrate things that are greater than healing a man who has been without strength for 38 years. Things greater than that? Why? 
says, so that they will, the, the ones who see it will marvel at the Son. Now stop and think about that love that, said, that Jesus said the Father has for him. He loves him in that way, and he just ha- it causes him great joy for people to see him do these things and then sit back in awe and say, like the disciples did, who is this man that he commands the wind and the waves and they obey him? The Father loves that because that's when you're starting to get who Jesus is. Therefore, you're also starting to get who the Father is. Then Jesus gives us two great examples of things that are greater than healing a man who's been without strength for 38 years, as he goes on in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Well, this is a huge thing. Who have you given life to? Oh, well, some of you say, well, I have children. Well, in a sense, you've you gave them life, but you really just passed on the life that was gifted to you, right? You don't have the ability to just say, be alive, right? But God has that. And God has the power to bring about life, to stop life, to bring death, right? Uh, that was clear, clear back at the very beginning of the, of the nation of Israel. Go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. It says, See now that I am He. Well, that's a statement God likes to make. I, I just am. I don't originate somewhere else. I, I am. And there is no God besides me. And it is I who put to death and give life. I have have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God is the giver of life. And ultimately, he's also the one that says whether a person lives or dies. Uh, We're told other places in scripture, he has our days numbered, right? God is alone the one who has that. He says, there is no other God. This is something that is God-like to be able to give life. He's the one in the beginning spoke and things came to life. He's the one who formed Adam out of the dust, right? And breathed the breath of life into him. He is the giver of life. And that, that truth came down through the years to the, to the point where in 2 Kings, if you turn over there, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, there's a situation uh, that comes up where the king of Aram sends his captain, his beloved captain <coughs> Naaman, to Israel because he's heard that there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha. And he's heard that Elisha can cure things. Well, this captain, Naaman, has leprosy, horrible disease, eating away at the skin, causing him great problems. And here he comes, this this powerful king sends this captain with a letter personally from him and says, I want my captain to be healed. Look at the response of the king of Israel, verse 7 of of chapter 5. 
when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure him of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. He's saying, oh, he's just trying to start a fight. But he recognizes, though he is the king, sovereign over the nation of Israel, he can't make somebody alive. He can't do what Jesus did for the man by the pool of Bethesda. Only God has that power to make alive. And in a preview of what's to come in John, John chapter 11 gives us that in a dramatic way. Remember John, what John chapter 11 is about? Where Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, has died. What does Jesus do? Well, he goes. After he has died, after he has been in the grave for four days, and you know what happens to a body after four days. And he calls him out of the grave. He just commands rise, come out, right? So there, there's not just the creation of new muscles around a part, one part of a body. But here is the whole package, right? Really, everything that had to be done for Adam. He had to have all new everything after four days. I mean, it, it, there was nothing fit for a living left in the body of Lazarus after four days. So Jesus, by his words, creates life in this man, creates new, new muscles and, and uh, veins and nerves and all of those things that are necessary. Brain cells, all that has to be recreated, right? Because after a very short amount of time, none of those body parts are fit to function ever again. That would just be cruel to bring somebody back to life, but not rejuvenate those. In chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus do that simply by speaking. Jesus has the ability, he says, to give life where he desires to do it, just like God does. And by the way, you might remember last week, the, the rabbis did believe that God worked on the Sabbath doing at least two things. One of those was giving life. So here Jesus had just given new life to the parts of, of, the, of this man that were not working, that was without strength. Just like God does. But that's not the end of what God does that is greater than giving that man a functional body again. According to verse 22, if we go back to John 5, it says, then for... Here's another one of his things in the list. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And by the way, that was the other thing that the rabbis said God did on the Sabbath, is that he judges. Jesus says, yes, God judges. God the Father has handed all judgment over to me, God the Son doesn't use those words, but in essence, that's what he's saying. I mean, you stop and think about it. We, just, we heard not too far back in, in John, John chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Let's, let's go look back at those really quick. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes 
in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Well, it says God didn't come into the world to judge the world, or Jesus didn't come into the world to, to judge the world. It's true in His first coming, He came as a Savior. He came to rescue people out from underneath judgment, right? Because he says there in that passage, everybody's under judgment unless they believe in the Son. And so Jesus came to say, believe in me. I will remove you from that place of judgment. Put your trust in me. What I will do will give you forgiveness of sins, will remove your judgment from you. And so did he come to to declare judgment on people? No, there was already judgment there. He came to rescue us out of that. However, there is going to be a day when he will return, and the judgment will not be based on whether you sinned or not, because all people have sinned. The judgment will be, did you receive this free gift that Jesus purchased for you when he died on the cross, when he opened up the way for you to get out from under judgment? But Jesus is the judge in the long run. He is the one who will declare innocent or guilty based on whether we have received him or not. In fact, clear back with Abraham. God is call, God is, alone is called the one who is the judge of the earth. Go back to Genesis 18, verse 25. Here the father, the ultimate, you know, the, the forefather of all of these people who are condemning him, wanting to kill him for making himself equal with God. It says far here, God or Abraham is speaking to God about destroying Sodom, and he knows his nephew Lot and his family are there in Sodom, and, he, and he's saying, "Well, you're going to destroy the, the the guilty along with the righteous." And he says, "Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the Judge of all the earth deal?" Justly? In other words, yes, He will. But who is the judge of all the earth? Well, God is. He revealed Himself as Yahweh. I am. He is the judge of all the earth. And now Jesus is saying, the Father has given all judgment into my hands. Oh, well, could, would God have given all judgment into the hands of a mere human? Would God have given the judgment of the world into the hands of someone who was not all-knowing, all-powerful, completely just? Of course not. Jesus is equally wise, knowledgeable, just, and good as the Father is. No one can exercise that role and not be God. So Jesus is just reaffirming again and again that, yeah, you got, you got the message right. I am claiming to be equal with God. And in this very important area of being able to judge all mankind. Well, then what's the outcome of that? Of all these things that the Father does with the Son? Well, verse 23, coming right off of the fact that the Father has put all judgment into the hands of of the Son. Why did he do that? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. 
Wow. You know what God says about his glory? About the honor that he deserves from, from men? Let's, let's go back to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament. Isaiah first 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8, says, I am the Lord, or I am, or Yahweh. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God makes it very clear. No one else will be allowed to be honored or worshipped like he is. Uh, then also in chapter 48 of Isaiah, we have a very similar statement. Isaiah 48, verse 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, this is God speaking, I will act. How can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. That would throw everything off in the universe, wouldn't it? God is the only one worthy of all glory, honor, and worship. If he were to raise someone who was not his equal up and say, honor this one like me, I, I don't know if I think the whole universe would just fall apart. It would be totally out of character and, and it would be a lie. Yet Jesus says here that the Father has put all judgment into his hands so that he would be honored just like the Father is. Wow. He wants every other person to give the same honor to Jesus that they give to him, which means that Jesus should be worshipped. And that makes Jesus the ultimate judge when it comes to with that condition. He is worthy and qualified to judge. Therefore, he must be worshipped. And Philippians 2 tells us what? Every, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the glory of the two tied perfectly together. Then back in John chapter 5, we have... Another part of it. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, you can't say that you worship God, but you don't worship or honor Jesus. You can't split those off. If, the, if, you, if there is a religion that says, oh, we worship Yahweh. We worship the God of all the earth. Jesus, we don't believe in him. We don't honor him. We, don't, we, we deny that he did these things as God. Jesus is saying, you can't do that. The way that this works, the way that, that the Father operates, and therefore the way also that I operate, is that you cannot rebel against what God is doing in and through me. Can a person rebel against the Father's desire and say that they are honoring the Father? God, God the Father, wants everyone to honor the Son. If you say, no, I won't honor the Son, then you are no longer honoring the Father. Can you reject His one and only Son? 
who is equal in glory and honor and power with him and still truthfully say that you worship him? To use a, a human example, father and son, you know, can, we, can you go slap Tate in the face, say bad things about him, and then go and say, oh, Bill, Bill, he's my best friend. He's, he's a good friend. We're going to just spend lots of time together and, and laugh and have a good time. You think that's going to go over very well? I don't think so. Jesus says that's the way it is with my father. And what he wants is me to be honored equally with him. And then he gives really the conclusion. What's the point of all this? Why did I say all these things? Verse 24. And again, he starts off with what? Truly, truly, pay attention. If you didn't get all the rest of this, pay attention and understand. I say to you, he that hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So he starts off with some conditions, right? First, you have to hear Jesus' word, his truth that he's proclaiming here. Then you have to believe, he says, in the one who sent me. And I think that's interesting. It's different than what he said in 3.16, right? And yet it means the same thing. In 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, in the son, shall not perish but has everlasting life. Here Jesus says, you must hear my words and believe in the one who sent me. Because they are unified, it means the exact same thing. To believe in the Father is to believe in the Son. And what are the results? First of all, he says, does not come into judgment. Oh, we'd heard in, verse, in chapter 3 that we were all condemned, right? We were all under judgment. And he did mean that all judgment, Jesus meant all judgment had been given to him by the Father. So he can make that declaration. Here the judge is speaking. You believe in this mission that I am on with my Father, that he has sent me as God to bear the sins of man and give them eternal life if they will entrust themselves to me. I can make that judgment because all judgment has been placed into my hand. His purpose in coming was to remove us from the condition that we were in already. So joining in as a condemned person into the plan of, the, of God the Father and God the Son is your only hope. Because you're already under judgment, he says. But if you do believe, if you wholeheartedly join in on that plan, he says, what do you have? You have eternal life. And then, and this is a present, ongoing reality. That's the verb tense there. You are having eternal life. At that point, you believe eternal life is yours in an ongoing way into eternity. And he goes on further to, to, to explain that by saying that you have passed out of death and into life. So the implication is that without Jesus, you were already dead. Oh, your heart was still beating. You are still breathing in and out. But without that relationship with him, you were dead. You had no relationship with the life giver. And so your future, the only hope that you have, or the only thing actually I shouldn't say hope, 
The only anticipation you had was being condemned and justly penalized for your sins. At the point where you start believing, then you move out, he says, out of that sphere, that condition of death, and now you exist, you live in the sphere of life. And, and, and the, again, verb tense is important here. He says what happens is that changed, and it has ongoing results into the future. And so you have been taken out of the sphere of death continually, then living in the sphere of life. But it, but it has to come with knowing the only one who can give life, and that is God. And Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, Jesus is just getting going by verse 24. He's just starting to explain why it is that they were correct in their assumption that he was making himself equal with God. But we have enough to know here that each of us has to take that claim in the most serious of ways. First of all, we must, if we want to pass from death into life, we must be believing in him and what it was he did on our behalf on the cross to pay for our sin and how that, that was accepted by his resurrection from the dead so that we can join him in having life that goes on forever, but not just life that goes on, but life that is in knowing him and living in him. When we have entered into life, we need to keep learning to understand that Jesus is God. What I mean by that is, I, like many of you, have been a, a believer in Jesus for many, many years, but sometimes the connection between Jesus and Jesus being God is hard to grasp because he's human. And we're just continually, throughout this life, figuring that out. What exactly does that mean? And if, in fact, he is God, and if, in fact, we've been joined together to him, our whole life, our living our being in this new realm of being those who are alive totally is tied to him, depends on him, and should line up with what he says is good and right and how we should live. So we're on a path. We're not just, oh, well, I have life, now just go about however I feel. Like, no, he's walking with you on a very narrow path that he is determining where it goes. Are you walking willingly with him is the question. Are you rejoicing that I get to walk with Jesus along this way? I get to experience not just breathing and having my heart beat, but what God calls life. That's what he calls us to. Make sure, first of all, that you've answered that call by putting your trust in Jesus. But then remembering as you walk, what an amazing journey. Jesus has you on. Let's pray. Father, these words from Jesus are so much to them, and I know I couldn't explain them well enough this morning, but your Spirit can help us to understand, and you can make us grow in that understanding, not just mentally, but in practice, in day-to-day, -day, the things that we do. So please help us to grasp that more, to live it more, to rejoice in it more, and Lord, if there's anybody who hasn't joined into that, that today, by your spirit, you just make it uh, inescapable that they, they just need to turn to Jesus. You would, you would 
direct their hearts and that then they would make that choice to, to, to believe in, in you, therefore believing in your son and receiving the gift of eternal life. Thank you for giving that to us, giving us the ability to live it. In Jesus' name.